Okay, should we start this party? Let's do it. Christopher. Hey, Liz. How are you? Busy, 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 busy. Yes, just like last time we talked about all the logistics, the logistics continue. And in fact, it's almost like the logistics got angry that I was talking shit about it and just tripled tripled the logistics as revenge. That's what it feels like. They were like, you think that sucks? Hold my beer. Exactly. Welcome to the new Monday. That's God. basically what it feels like. But oh. but good. Still ticking. Still dodging the COVID. You know, yeah, doing that's, all that. I mean, and what more can you ask for right, in this right. day and age? Yeah. Um, I'm curious. It's been a minute. What's top of mind for you? Top of mind, I'm very alarmed by what's what I'm seeing in the news. Um, I don't know if we've talked about it on this podcast, but when the sort of movement against critical race theory mm. first emerged mm-hmm. in, from like stupid Republican, like, you know, focus group type, you know, laboratories and unleashed onto the public. I was like, my initial take was that they had made a mistake, you know, mm. that this was like too esoteric a topic too, you know, like too academic for, for people to like really rally behind, like, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, totally. like things like, uh, you know, things like issues like abortion, if, uh, issues like this, like these kind of wedge issues are very effective because like, they're very like, you know, visceral and, you know, like right in your face, you know, mm-hmm. but critical race theory. I honestly, mean, it's like, honestly. how are you going to build a political, you know, um, grievance campaign around something like critical race theory? So I was like, kind of, thinking that this was, a you know, like, oh, these Republican focus groups got this one wrong, that mm-hmm. they like, that they, but I was wrong, right? Because yeah. it is the defining or one of the driving political issues on the right right now. It is. And it's, it's, I don't know. I thought maybe they were using it to win a midterm election in Virginia or whatever, mm-hmm. but now I'm seeing books actually being banned. Mm in red states and mm. it is a really chilling thing and i think we need to be paying attention to this a lot more than we have you know i yeah. think the news i've been seeing has been focused around that graphic comic mouse mm-hmm. being banned which was which is wild if you think about it it's a book about the holocaust and raising right. awareness about the holocaust yeah. um, being on this um list of banned books but if you look at What's, you know, like beyond that, you know, books about race, you know, Toni Morrison's Beloved, Mm -hmm. you know, um, all these books that people were kind of, you know, really engaging with after uh, like George Floyd. It's almost like everyone was like, okay, these are the books that we're going to try to ban (laughs) when everything calms down. That's exactly what's happening. It's the books about race uh, and then books about LGBTQ um, Mm. uh, books are all being banned. Uh, particularly in Texas, I think that's kind of where one of the battlegrounds is. This state representative in Texas sent a list of 850 books that he was concerned it creates, quote, discomfort, guilt, or anguish, you know, for people and mm. should be considered banned. And, and there are images emerging out of Texas of people kind of like, you know, you know, dragging books out of, you know, school libraries. And I'm like, what country are we living in? What is this? It is, it's, yeah, it is a little bit terrifying. It is. No, it's, it's really, really terrifying. Uh, 62% of these books apparently are feature some character that is LGBTQ and that's enough to go on this banned list, God, you know, and, um, I don't know. I I just I'm I'm incensed by. I don't know if I have a, a a real point to make, except you know I have this tiny little platform, and I'm like, we gotta raise, we gotta raise the alarm bells on this because this is like very dystopian. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, it, it's I find it incredibly hypocritical, you know, because like you know apparently the elements of the right are also supposedly about free speech and mm-hmm. supposedly about like not like not censoring or whatnot and right right you know and like oh you know like government overreach government overreach and yeah when it comes to stuff that you know quote unquote threatens white people we'll just pass laws to to ban books that's um that 
doesn't sound consistent at all. So right, um, right, and the same is true about gun rights, right? Like you would think that if they are really in support of gun rights for everybody, then like the murder of Philando Castile in Minnesota should have, like, really galvanized them. But yeah. they said nothing because right. they do not. They are they are not for black people having guns. They are for white people having guns, and they're just for. I'm white people, right? Yeah, I mean, so exactly. that's what that's, the, that that is the overarching ideology is right. being for white people, right? And that's that's the that's why they can stand being hypocritical, because like, it's not about a value; it's mm-hmm. about whatever threatens their existence or what or perceived threats to their existence or to their way of thinking or what makes them comfortable. Mm-hmm. They are going to start exercising you know, the power that they actually have in order to do this. And that's why this is so chilling. And I just didn't think that, you know, like in the U.S. we can talk about these things and we're, you know, all this, but to actually start passing laws to like ban books from school classrooms is is absurd. Yeah. And it's it's really terrifying. So that's, I don't know, like that's that's my little spiel on the whole thing. I've been kind of like watching it and, you know, kind of, I'm like, wow, I can't believe this is what it's come down to. But the silver lining is uh, the fastest way to make people read books is to try to ban it, right? 100%. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So there might be um, the the unintended consequences could be interesting, but we won't know what they are for a long time. So we will see how this pans out. But, you know, I think if you are a parent, if you are anybody who cares about, you know, just, I don't know freedom of speech the real freedom of speech then please like pay attention to this because this is getting scary yeah lighten it up liz what's been on top of your mind well yes in contrast to you i am putting my (laughs) fingers in my ears and ignoring all of it because my day-to-day reality is so taxing that i cannot (laughs) spend too much time thinking about any of these things so top of mind for me is a little netflix doc i watched a few weeks ago called speed cubers Mm. Have you seen it, Chris? I have not. Okay. So I heard about it because my older kid um, was very into Rubik's Cubes for a while. And it is a very charming 40-minute documentary on Netflix about the friendship between two of the world's fastest Rubik's Cube solvers, who are they're called speed cubers. And um, I put it on with my kids and within 10 minutes, I was weeping oh and I wept through the entire thing. Like, I did not expect that at all, obviously, coming from a feel-good documentary about kids who love Rubik's Cubes. But it was just so beautiful from top to bottom. I just I just loved it so much. I think there's two, there's like two levels here. So one, one thing that's really beautiful about it is that just everybody in this documentary so desperately wants what's best for everyone else. Mm. And at the core of it is this Korean American teenager named Max Park from Cerritos, who is moderately to severely, um, he's moderate to severe on the autism spectrum. And it's kind of about his journey and about what Rubik's Cubes have meant for him, like physically and socially. And they talk to his parents and like watching this Asian American couple who are just working so hard to do what's best for their brilliant, awkward son, like tear. I could not stop. I could not stop crying. It was so beautiful. And this friend, like the other, you know, Huber in the doc is like his hero. He's this Australian, like brilliant world record holding Huber. And Max Park is getting so good that he's like starting to break all this dude's records. Right. And it's about their friendship and how like this older and by older, I mean, he's like 21 or whatever, like this older Huber is like, like becomes like a mentor and like a friend to this, like, you know, this 17 year old who is like so painfully awkward because of his like, you know, because of his developmental issues. Um, And it's just like, it's so beautiful. And it's like, just so like, even as Max Park is like overtaking him as like the best Huber in the world, just to see like their relationship and the humility, like it was so, it was incredible. I loved it. So all that to say it was really good. And I really, the dad in the movie made me think of you actually. Um, 
because I think because he's like a Korean American man from SoCal. So like, obviously there's some of that, <laughs> yeah. but like you, you look a little bit like him and I just feel like he was just so kind and like articulate about like what the struggle had been like for him and his experiencing his experience of like raising this son who is so different and unusual from other children that he has, you know, interacted with in his life. Like, I, yeah, just big Chris Peck vibes. So um, it was really beautiful. Yeah. And I, I, so if anybody has 40 minutes and like wants to be moved to the point of tears, this doc is great. So I loved it. I'm going to put it on the list. Yeah. And I mean, it's really, it takes like no time at all. Yeah. So, 40 minutes. Perfect. 40 minutes. Who doesn't have 40 minutes? That is, that is the sweet spot. It's yeah. my new sweet spot. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. So we're in our third season and we've been doing this for two and a half years, Woo! which is crazy. I mean, with breaks, but still it's kind of wild to think that we started this two and a half years ago because it feels like a lifetime ago. It does. Wow. Um, And a whole lot of life has happened since then, especially for you. Yes. And we found ourselves this season revisiting topics that we've discussed before. And I think about it kind of like we are climbing up a mountain by like walking around it, like swirling our way up. And I feel like we keep going up. But as we keep walking around this mountain, we encounter like the same I don't know, like landmarks and terrain that we've encountered before only from a different vantage point because we're higher up the mountain. Does does that make sense? I love that visual. It totally makes sense. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So this season, like we've revisited like holiday presents and adulthood. And now we find ourselves thinking about friendships again, which is something we've talked about in a previous episode. But like we're in these very specific places where we have like very specific takes on friendship. Um, and this came up because you were talking about invitations to your forthcoming wedding. Mm-hmm. And I would just love to hear you talk about like what like what this been what what this has been like for you and like what thoughts this is bringing up for you, this whole process of like figuring out who you're gonna invite to your wedding. Yes, so I'm sure I'm not unique in having these thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. So first, I think we wanted to understand, are we going to have a big wedding or not? Uh-huh. And, and I think we have no choice but to think that it will be. Okay. okay. <laughs> I think how, it, yeah. how big is big? Um, that's still de- to be determined, but... Okay. I'm only starting to understand like, you know, you know, when you like, I think people who have planned weddings or done weddings before, like have an intuitive idea of like, oh, 150 or Mm -hmm. 300 or Mm -hmm. something and like what is big and all that. So I'm still kind of figuring out what what does big mean Mm. in in those numbers. Right. And um, so we're kind of putting that aside first. We're we're saying, okay, let's put a spreadsheet together. Uh (laughs) And the spreadsheet is you know like again like kind of going through it's 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 interesting how my partner and I've differed in the way we're doing spreadsheets so mm. i'm doing spreadsheets in terms of who are like there are tiers right mm, mm-hmm. so of course mm-hmm. there's like the mandatory the mandatories mm-hmm. there's no question about it because because you're obligated or because your friendships are so solid both, both. okay yeah, got you both so uh, it family is included in that. Sure, sure. Okay. Cetera, right. Uh-huh. So the mandatories and then the tier twos are sort of the like, it would be really nice mm-hmm. to have them and I want them there, but it kind of depends on what venue we're going for. Yes. Kind of thing. Sure, sure. Then the tier threes, which are no problem to invite. Like I want them there. It'd be great. But it's like maybe it's been a while mm. since we've been in touch, you know, mm. like et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as you're going through this and you're, as I'm kind of organizing into tears, you're thinking about, you know, friendship groups and all these kinds mm. of things. My partner is doing tears as well, but kind of taking a different approach, which is she's like thinking about phases of her life. Mm, mm-hmm. So like, let's start with elementary school. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, yeah. like, and then going through phases of life and then being like, who are the mandatory and then like tears within that, right? Uh-huh. And so we were kind of reflecting on the creation of these spreadsheets and so many things came up like, 
oh, it's interesting if we made this spreadsheet five years ago, yes. it would look so different. So different. And there are people now that maybe we've lost touch with, but a wedding invitation is a signal to them that we would like this relationship to continue, even though we mm. haven't been in touch for a while. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? Or, yes. Or there are friendships that have just, like, what do you do with friendships that, like, they're friends with you now because they're they're now in your life because you're in the same city or something, you know, mm-hmm. versus like a friend that you've known for much longer, but mm-hmm. you've like completely lost touch with over time. So I think the creation of the spreadsheet has just like sparked a lot of thoughts around what is the nature of friendships and mm-hmm. like how time bound they are and how mm-hmm. location bound they are and how fluid they are because maybe a friend that, was out of your life five years ago, is back in your life now yes. that they're in New York or where, where I am in New York. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, you know, the spreadsheet of a friend of a wedding list is like a snapshot in time. Yes. And yeah, it's just like, there's a lot of like temporality kind of going on in my mind when I'm thinking about these wedding invitation. Temporality vis-a-vis friendships. You know, yeah. so it's a very interesting exercise. Again, I'm sure a lot of people went through it. Like, did you go through that when you were doing your wedding invite list or were you in a different stage of life where it was just like, everyone's invited? We're gonna no, have a no, big no, party. no, no. There was no way we could do everyone. Yeah. Not possible. So yeah. um, I relate to this on a molecular level <laughs> because I, too, had a spreadsheet and I took your partner's tack, which was we're going through the phases of life. Yeah. And who are the mandatories and who are the would be nice and who are the like the kind of like sad and heartbreaking realization that like this person who I thought was like going to be part of my life forever. Like we actually haven't talked in seven years and like Mm -hmm. maybe it doesn't make sense anymore. You know? Yeah. It is such a profoundly strange exercise to like all because all these friendships are happening and like these dynamics are changing. But then when you do the wedding spreadsheet, it is like you are actually quantifying and categorizing and sorting your friends. And it's there's something very disorienting and strange about it, this kind of like referendum that you're making on your friendships at this stage of your life, right? Yeah, totally. And what you said about the invitation is totally true. It's basically red light, green light, right? Mm-hmm. Green light means like I want this to keep going or you are such a big part of my past life that you are going to be here whether or not I've spoken to you in the last 10 years. It's right. only one of two things. And not sending an invitation is basically like, it's been great, but uh, our friendship is not, like we, we haven't talked in long enough or our friendship is just not a big enough part of my our life, my life anymore that like this makes sense. Mm. And it's so weird to do that. It is. It is. Because as you say, relationships like can come and go, right? Mm-hmm. So it could be like you have the wedding and then like the next day, this person who wasn't invited to your wedding moves to your city and then you become mm-hmm. close again. Yeah. And then you're like, you should have been invited to my wedding. Yes. But I honestly forgot because you were gone in my from my life in, for like seven years. Yeah. Know? And at that point, it wouldn't have made sense. Like we were not actually hanging out. So totally. yeah, totally. it is. It is super. It's super strange. You mentioned before like kind of obligatory invitations. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, not a family, I'm thinking about people who have invited me to their weddings. Mm, the reciprocal invite. The reciprocal invite. That was one. Like, how did you handle reciprocal invites for people who maybe you lost touch with? Because for me, you know, that's one of the things about getting married way later yeah. is that I have a lot of people who invited me to their weddings in my when I was in my 20s yeah. who literally the last time I even spoke to them or saw them was at that wedding. At that wedding, right? which at this point was like between 10 and 15 years ago. But yeah, no, the reciprocal invite, mm, yeah, that is that is tricky. I think, I don't know. I feel like at the time I had some like somewhat arbitrary cutoff where it was like, if we haven't talked in the last three or five years, like I don't feel bad about not inviting you. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, yeah, but I, if, if it had been, I feel like if I was getting married now, it would be easier in some ways and more complicated in others, just like you said, because it's clearer now who I've stayed in touch with from high school, from college, from grad school, right? From right. all of those chapters of my life. But then these new people in my life now, I mean, I assume that I would want, yeah. It's just like, how do you establish like who in your current life you're close enough to, to be part of this, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and one, one advantage, I think, of doing it the way we're doing, because so I created my spreadsheet. This is all preliminary, but I created mm-hmm. my spreadsheet and I looked at the mandatories, just the mandatories. Mm-hmm. And we're already at like 101. For just you? For just me. Not even her. And I see, I am the the less social person wow. between the two of us. Like that her is list. also shocking to me because you know a lot of people. Right, right, right. So I, I know that my list is pretty, pretty strong, but her list is like literally like it could be it could be like we're we're through her middle school phase and she's at a hundred. Like that oh that's my the, God. You know, it could be. I'm I'm not I was too afraid to look at her list, you know? <laughs> um but but basically, uh, yeah, so I'm at 100. And then tier twos, I'm somewhere around the 130s or one, 135. Okay, well, that's not so, too bad. So, yeah, let's just be generous and double that, right? So we're already encroaching upon 300. That which- is so bananas because I feel like people who get married in their late 30s, usually the wedding is like smaller, small, right? Small. Like, yeah, I'm yes. going to a wedding this summer where it's like 30 people. And this isn't even, this isn't even like, you know, because when you're in your 20s, you're inviting a lot of your parents' friends. Mm-hmm. These are these are people, these are just between me and these my partner. Yeah. Right. Because I guess that is the thing. The older you are, the more time you've had to collect friends. But the thing is that for most people, there's like a real whittling down process. Yeah. But if you have kept in touch with everybody from every chapter of your life, then yeah, you can have a whole hell of a lot of people. Oh, you know what it is? This is the big thing. So this is the difference is that when you're in your solidly in your 30s, mm-hmm. you have to offer the plus one. Yes, that 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 is huge. That is huge. That doubles. Yeah. That's for sure. So everybody you invite, it like doubles. And so that's also a tricky thing in the spreadsheet because we have like most of my friends are paired up now, mm-hmm. but we do have friends that are seeking, uh-huh. but maybe are still single. You yeah. can't offer them. Just one invitation. Yeah, at this point in life, you can't not. You, you can't have to not. do the plus you have one. To do the plus one. Yeah. 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 Because, Especially yeah. if everybody else is partnered, you can't not. Exactly. Let them. Yeah. Oh, so God, that's that. that is how. Actually, so my list is actually maybe more like 50 sixty people. Fifty, yeah, sixty people. Yeah. 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 But yeah. Okay. It's doubled. Okay. Yeah. These, this is a no kids wedding out of necessity, yeah. really, out of the, more than yeah. anything, but. <laughs> Um, but then this isn't so, so a couple of things. So I'm already 130 something. I haven't yeah. offered my parents any invitations. So obviously they get some invitations. Right. This is like approaching 400 territory and I'm like shocked. And the thing is, is that that's very expensive. So like it's, it, that like the number one way to blow up the cost of the wedding is to invite more people. So, and the number one way to shrink the cost of the wedding is to invite fewer people. So... Uh, this is a pretty serious investment you're making. Yeah. Damn, dude. That's no joke. <laughs> um, so spe- actually, speaking of wedding invites, you know, the other thing, um, and I have to, can I give my very first, I don't think we've ever given a shout out on this podcast before. Okay. I'm going to give a shout out to a loyal, apparently a very loyal listener, Ricky, my okay. friend Ricky. Bless. Who gave, like, we had this conversation and kind of sparked the idea for this for this episode uh-huh. holiday cards mm. we just got a bunch of holiday cards mm-hmm. and i imagine see i have never done holiday cards uh-huh. um, because it's it the idea of me as a single person sending a picture of my face to a bunch of people doesn't make much sense to me so i never did holiday cards um let me tell you it would delight me <laughs> if you sent me just a photo of your face incredible i had a friend who did that actually and it was incredible it's her <laughs> That is that's very cool. It was I, cool. Yeah, I, I'm not that cool to be able to pull that <laughs> off, right? Like you have to be a certain level, and I I'm not at that level. Um, but okay, it's a weird thing for me because e- now that even if I like, I feel like even if I had a family, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be a holiday card person. Don't quote me on that. That might change. Uh-huh. Having said that, I really appreciate it when people send me a holiday card. Yeah. Like it's a very nice thing to see, especially friends that maybe I don't see that often and just see how their kids are growing. And yeah. It's nice. It's nice yes. to see. You are a holiday card person. I am a serious holiday card person. It was yes. like, in terms of like, life changes I was looking forward to after I had a kid it was like in the top five I'm not even kidding you it was like the ability to dress the child as an animal for Halloween was maybe top three um but 
sending holiday cards was top five, I would say. And, and we so have done it every year. And so, yes, that's what that's the whole point. So you have to do this and go through this exercise every year. Yes. And I imagine that there is, is there like a similar wedding invite, friendship, time referendum. thing, referendum happening every year? Every, every year. year? Yes, yes. And that's actually what, what, where my head was going as you were talking about this. Because there was a long break for, for me in between... I guess it wasn't that long. It was like five years between the wedding and then the starting of the holiday cards because that's when I we had our first kid. Um, and then it became like, okay, we get to do this again and we're going to do it every year. And not only – so like I we, we have – I have this spreadsheet all year that I update with new addresses and whatever as I get them. And um, every November – in advance of the minted Cyber Monday holiday sale, um, <laughs> I have to think about who is getting a holiday card. And I refuse to change the number that I buy because they're not cheap, right? It's Holiday cards are a real investment. Like They're not cheap to get. Usually they involve some kind of nice photo that is also not free. Postage is real. It's it's like a real it – is, it, is it is complete nonsense if you Wait, think about it. So like, give me a number. Give me a number here. So um, I bought like a, a number of cards or a number of in price or both. Price, price. Okay, okay. So I buy every year 125 holiday cards from Minted. With the with the sale, it's probably about like 190 uh-huh. for the, just the cards. Okay. Um, I have an ama- a friend who's an amazing photographer who does our photos every year. Uh, so that's not that, which is also not free. Uh, and then there's postage, you know. Like mm-hmm. 125 cards times whatever 57 cents, like that's also another expense. So all mm-hmm. told, like several hundred dollars go into sending this piece of um, cardstock <laughs> with my kids' faces on it to my top 125 friends. Wow. Um, and if you think about it again, it makes no sense at all. But like, I fucking love holiday cards. I love them. I love beautiful pictures of my friends, especially like you said, if they're people that I haven't seen and I don't get to see in my regular life. Yeah. Like I really, and especially if they have kids, like I love that, love that shit. I love thinking about what they look like, ideal number of photos, photo size, like how, if you write a letter, how you're going to write that letter that goes with it. Like I think about all of this and I love it. So because this is like the the part of like family nonsense that I love. I love yeah. Halloween costumes and I love this bullshit. So um, every single year I have to go through and think about and I have them ordered by phase and they, they're color coded uh, in my world. Uh, and I go through and I think about like, OK, um, who are the people I'm probably going to cut, especially because we just moved to the city where we plan to live forever. Right. Yeah. So every year the the the. The, the Ann Arbor list gets longer and longer because we build friendships here. And these are to use like the red light, green light analogy are people yeah. that we are hoping to be friends with forever. Right. Okay. So, okay. So you have a fixed 125. And so yeah. every time you add somebody, someone has to get bumped. Correct. Wow. Correct. Yes. Which is vicious in some ways. Right. Some people will never leave. Like my family, our relatives right. are never leaving. Um, and there are some people, some friendships, I don't, I'm curious, like, I'm curious if you have people like this in your life where it's like, no matter how much time has passed, they're never, they're never leaving. Right. And um, yes. I have a handful of people like that, but it's really interesting to see even just in the last seven years, how the list has evolved. Like the number of people, friends from high school who I send cards to is like down to three and it's wow. probably going to go down to two next year. That wow. doesn't encourage church friends. Church friends are a different story, but like, wow. you know, that was very different than it was like seven years ago right my and every year like the college grad school people who I never thought I would stop sending because it's basically like you said like when you don't send somebody a holiday card you're basically saying like our friendship is not even really does not even merit this like piece of cardstock once a year you know well I have a a controversial opinion I don't want to stop your flow if you're going to buy okay so I would like to offer a controversial opinion about this because please as somebody who like, okay, so when I receive a holiday card, I'm like, oh, that's very nice for them uh-huh. to think about me and to send it. That's very sweet, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. For, I mean, maybe I'm just not a holiday card person. So, like, it's, it's, 
eye-opening for me, for example, I never thought about the cost of sending these holiday cards, mm. right? And then the photo and then all the, you know, and then the thought that went behind it and then the spread, the millions of spreadsheets out there <laughs> with people like contemplating this, right? So not being a holiday card person, right? I know that there was a, a slew. I, was, I would say I got maybe like 10 or 15 holiday cards this year just for me, right? And okay. uh-huh. I'm sure my partner got it. But I don't remember, I'm talking to you about it. So I know now that you are a diehard holiday card person. Yes. So if Christmas rolls around one year and I don't get one from you, I'm like, what happened? Like, did I get bumped from this list? Totally. We need to have a conversation. (laughs) Exactly. But for most people, like, I can't tell you this year, for example, like, who sent me one this year that also sent me one the year before. Mm. I, I can't keep track of it for that long. Uh-huh. So I don't know who is a holiday card person. Yeah. And, and not everybody. List, exactly. And yeah. whose list you may or may not have been bumped Exactly. For. So <laughs> when I don't get one from somebody, I don't take that as a referendum that something is over in our friendship. But yeah. for the sender, it could. It, you have a concrete spreadsheet in which you've physically removed people. Yes. From the spreadsheet. I mean, to be fair, I am more serious about this than most people. So I know people who do them some years and don't do them other years, right? And so for those folks, I'm I I I can I do not know how to interpret what not receiving one means. But then there are other people who are diehards like me, where it's like if I don't receive one, I'm like, oh, this this okay, got it, got it. Mm. And usually. It's not a surprise, right? It's somebody who I haven't seen with my own eyes in like 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not shocking that I no longer receive a friend or a card from a friend that I haven't seen since my own wedding, right? But it is always a little bit of like a, huh, okay. And it's like a little bit of a bummer. I mean, it's not, it's totally understandable, but it is weird again to have that very tangible marker, a physical marker of the status of your friendship. Which yes. you, even those those dynamics, again, are happening and changing all the time. Like to have something concrete marking it is just a little odd, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 125 is, is valuable real estate on that list. You know? I mean, dep- I mean, some people think that's an absurdly high number. I don't know how many cards other people buy, but this is a number that I do not feel like I can deviate from. <laughs> for my own sake. Yes, yes, for your own because, sake. Yeah, because yeah, like this is nonsense money. Right? <laughs> some people get the cards and throw them away way immediately but like for me this is like a meaningful like the exchange of cards is a meaningful thing so another argument could be made that you know a friend that you can just hand deliver a holiday card to Uh is that somebody that belongs on the holiday card list only because like there's a lot of value for me for example in getting a holiday card like just to see kids grow up Mm -hmm. and like oh i haven't seen you in a long time but i really appreciate seeing oh my god you know little timmy's gotten so big Uh right (laughs) but like your neighbor for example like they see you all the time they get to interact with you and 125 you know spots is a valuable real estate like do they get is there an argument to be made that people in proximity, you know, don't get a holiday card? You know, that's a really interesting question because somebody else asked this of me this year, a friend who was like, I don't know why I got a card from somebody who lives down the street from me. <laughs> and I'm like, and who she is also not a holiday card person. <laughs> yeah. But as somebody who is a holiday card person, it's like it would be like not inviting her to my wedding because she <laughs> I see her all the time. She actually is most deserving of the holiday card because she is like an active part of my life. You know what I mean? So I maybe there are people out there who operate like that. Like this is just basically like their newsletter to everybody that they don't see. Yeah. But um, this is a this is a marker of friendship for you. No. Yes, exactly. I think that people who are serious about holiday cards like it is a marker of friendship. And so I was very honored. Like some of you know, I'm in I'm new in town. So whenever I get added to somebody's list. I'm like, oh, yeah. this is like a signal that yeah. like, you know, this is a friendship that they see a future in. Right. The signaling of holiday this, cards and, and wedding invites. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's just so strange, isn't it? Like, I don't know, like the the, the quantification, mm-hmm. like just basically like every year at this time, this is a snapshot of our relationships. And like for you, it's even, it's magnified, right? Like, because the people who are at your wedding, like to like it's like the one time in your life when you get to have everybody you want, give or take, present in the same room for you at the same time. 
while you're alive. Maybe your funeral is the other one, right? So like, I just feel like the weight of that, it just, it feels like a lot. The guest list was by far the most stressful part for me of of planning a wedding. I'm sure for for most people, right? Um, Yeah, I guess that's true. But I feel like especially when you're Asian, oh my God, like the fear of offending is like so big. And I feel like because we're so communal, it's like, I feel like the people who got married right out of college, it was easier in some way because there's like you just have to you have to invite everybody because everybody is still connected yeah but then when you are like a few years out you're like so like which like where do i make the incisions like who of this group do i like you know do i keep in and keep out and like that was so 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 stressful yeah (sighs) that was great we could talk about this truly forever it's a it's a bread and butter topic it is it is right right in our wheelhouse (laughs) (laughs) it is just weird and funny to be at a stage of life where it's like every year I get to like take an inventory of friends. I can't believe you go through this every year. I'm already like having hives just thinking about doing it once. You know. Yeah. I mean, this again, the stakes are much, much lower, yeah. but like, you know, it is an interesting, it is an interesting exercise. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So, um, I've been so I've been so excited about this week's top five. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. I'm so happy to hear that. So this week's top five is top five TV characters. I am also I've also been very excited about this, uh, and I can't wait to talk about it with you. Um, shall I go first? Yes. Okay. Yes. So my number five is Ted Lasso from the show Ted Lasso. Um, this was a tough call because there are so many excellent characters in Ted Lasso, but at the end of the day, I had to go with Ted himself because not only is he stupid, funny, laugh out loud, the asides, the turns of phrase, but he's a character that has such depth and the writers have done such a good job of creating like an entire psychological framework for why he is the way he is, a whole backstory. And I mean, I've said this in recent weeks, Jason Sudeikis just fucking destroys this at every level. He's so brilliant comedically and his abilities as a dramatic actor, I think are astounding and the show lets us see all of it. So Ted Lasso is my number five. It's very recent. Yeah, it's like it's you know, it's like uh, certain certain things like shows and movies have like they they the older they are, they take on more like, you know, like icon status. So uh-huh. going with a, a new show is a very bold choice. Oh, like. you should know that no, none of these characters are from before like 2010. <laughs> I, I don't really do old TV so much. So uh, my number four is The Iceberg from Saturday Night Live. Have you seen this sketch or this weekend update bit, Chris? I have not. Oh, my God. I, like, literally want to stop this recording so you can watch it. Um, so The Iceberg was a weekend update segment performed by Bowen Yang, who I fucking love. Not just because he's Asian American, although that's part of it, but he is just so good at this job. And he's like, killing it. He's killing it. He every opportunity he delivers, and he brings this incredibly subversive twist to every one of his characters, and it is perfectly encapsulated in the iceberg. So it's basically the bit is that it's like they're they're nearing the anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, and so they bring on the iceberg. They want to, they're going to interview the iceberg. And so the iceberg comes on, played by Bo and Yang, and Colin Joe starts asking him all these questions about the night, the fatal night of the Titanic. <laughs> but the iceberg is super mad because he's actually there to pr- promote his new album. <laughs> and just... <laughs> perfect premise. It's perfect. And like, it's just watch it's just such a perfect encapsulate like the way the way that he performs it and the way that it's written it's such a perfect encapsulation of like celebrity publicist culture where it was like this is not what we agreed to i feel totally ambushed and like the victim like the iceberg believing that they are the victim of this whole thing it is so good um it was it it, it earned him an emmy nomination this, oh, wow. this one segment alone earned him an emmy nomination so 
Chris, as soon as this recording is over, you need to watch it. I, I just, I love it so much. And I also, again, I think Bowen Yang is just fucking killing it and nothing delights me more because he seems like such a lovely person. And also because he is this like Asian American icon. And I love that he is just providing like so many different, like a new, like expanding the imagination of what like Asian American masculinity can look like. I really love that. So the iceberg is my number four. Yes. Great one. My number three is David Rose from Schitt's Creek. Um, Perhaps not a surprise as my number two current celebrity crush is Dan Levy. But I love this character so much because he is so deeply unlikable, especially in season one. But the way that Dan Levy plays him, he really imbues him with this like vulnerability and humanity and you kind of see over the arc of the series about how like the archness and the cutting and that like it under it's all protecting this like very tender center that I feel like Dan Levy just like plays so brilliantly and the David Rose and Patrick love story is my favorite maybe in all of television I do not like romantic comedies, but I watched their scenes from season three and four like on, over and over again, like on, on YouTube. They are just so sweet. And ah, God, David Rose is my number it's, three. It's so good. It's about to be banned by Texas. Exactly. Yes. Oh, my God. That's upsetting. Oh, just wow. But that's the thing. That's the, the thing I love about. Netflix and that I love about the teens. The teens cannot be confined. That's right. The teens are going to watch Shit's Creek, yeah. regardless of what the old white legislatures legislators in their states say. So, I hope they do try to ban it. Let's see what happens. You seriously. Know? Oh, my God. Okay. My number two is Connie the Hormone Monster from Big Mouth. Oh, my gosh. I totally forgot about Big Mouth. I love Connie the Hormone Monster. So good. So Connie, okay, how do we explain Connie the Hormone Monster? So we've talked about Big Mouth on the show. It's about a bunch of eighth graders who are starting puberty. And um, basically when they start puberty, they get their own hormone monster that tells them to like give in to all of their worst impulses. And um, the main female character on the show, whose name is Jessie, her hormone monster is named Connie, and she's voiced by Maya Rudolph, who is one of the great comic talents of our time. And you know how some actors in voiceover are, are like when they do voice work, like they're kind of limited by the fact that you can't see them. Maya Rudolph is the opposite. Like something about it. She just leans all the way into this character and just makes a meal out of every single line. It is such a joy to listen to. And like, even just the way she says things like, like bubble bath, like she just like (laughs) plays every phrase, like draws all of the meat out of every phrase. It is just the most brilliant comic performance. And that's really saying something because Maya Rudolph is such a good performance. Like, performer period right so the fact that she's doing i think some of her best work like when you can't even see her just i think goes to show like the depth of her talent she's a treasure she is a treasure and she is so fucking good in this character so connie the hormone monster is my number two and my number one is captain holt from brooklyn 99 oh my gosh i'm going through brooklyn 99 right now so you've you've seen the show I love and every character on that every show. Every character on that show is so well drawn. Oh my God. Captain Holt. How have we have not talked about Captain Holt? It is a fucking iconic performance. And I think it is one of the most underrated comic performances of like our current time. Yes. That's he, how I feel. He is yes. so good. So, okay. So, yes, yeah, so we have to set the scene. Brooklyn Nine, I'm sure people have seen it. But if you haven't seen it, it's basically an office comedy set in a police station. And all of the characters, I think it's very hard these days to come up with like new comedic tropes, but they managed to get some like new comedic tropes in there. And yeah. one of them is the captain who's played by Andre Brower, who is like a very serious actor. All of those words capitalized like Shakespeare, like Shakespearean, like dramatic, like, mm-hmm. and they put him in this comedic role and he fucking destroys <laughs> 
every single scene he kills. And like, it was the first time ever watching a show where I was like, I need, I want more of him. Just go back to him. And the way that he plays every, because again, he's like the straight foil for every, like every like off the wall zany character. But just the way he delivers lines, like there's one episode where he and Gina, his assistant, are going through Sex in the City. I don't fully understand why. And he leans over to her and he's like, so Miranda left Blair Underwood for Steve. And just the way that he delivers it, again, he just sucks all the juice out of it. And I I love it so much. He is... Andre Brower for everything. He is so good in this role. Um, and I think, again, one of the most underrated comic performances. Wow. How have we gone two and a half years and not talked about Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Having said that, I'm watching it right now. I'm going through it right time? now. For the first time? Okay, so that's probably why. Yeah. yeah Where are you? I'm on season two. Okay, okay. So you're still pretty early in this. Yes. But Captain Holt is just a standout. Right? Yes. Standout. I mean, oh my God. him, so I think like my three favorite is like Amy Santiago. I just mm-hmm, love that mm-hmm. character. I just love her so much. It's hard to like quantify. So earnest and naive and just, yes. yeah. The, the whole teacher's pet angle yes, is the best. Yes, yes, yes. It's the best. It's the best. What's the sergeant's name? Terry Crews. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I think his name is Terry, isn't it? Is Terry? Yeah, that's yeah. right. I love Terry. Uh, and then, of course, Captain Holt. I mean, it's just so good. All yeah. the characters on my life. Ah, such a good so, list. Such a good list. Thank you. Thank you. And clearly, I only want to laugh when I'm watching TV. I do yes. not. I mean, with my, with the exception of my, the fact that I've seen The Sopranos and Breaking Bad and Succession, I mostly just want to laugh. That's where I really, that's what I no, really I love it. TV I show, love it. So. I, it's, it's so clear. So a couple things about my list. Um, number one, and I, I noticed it on your list too, but it was really hard to find female characters. Yes, that, yes. And and th- I really think that says a lot. I mean, we talk about movie and representation, but like, where are all the great female characters on TV? Yes, I totally agree. I totally agree. I had the same like um, conflict. Yeah. I was like, where are all the good female characters? And I think I'm I think that. So, yeah. Not as much has been invested in these characters. Yes. 100 percent. For so. sure, for sure. The other thing is, um, it, this is one of those moments where you have not have you not having watched The Wire is killing me. Okay, because <laughs> because it's five characters from The Wire. It could have been all five, but I didn't want to go that way. The the real top five is all five characters from The Wire. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna vary it up. But the top three characters, I, I couldn't knock them off. So there, get it. Three characters on The Wire. But okay. the first two. Okay, so number five, uh-huh. I really wanted to reserve a spot for a female character. So I was like, you know, going through my head about all my favorite female characters. And it was kind of a, I'm kind of kind of cheap, right? So a long time ago, like I watched a lot of I Love Lucy reruns. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's like what was on daytime TV, especially in the summer. I would just watch I Love Lucy. So I have a very, very tender spot in my heart for Lucy, uh, Lucille Ball. I mean, Lucy an icon. 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 An icon. Great character. But I'm going to go, my number five is going to go with Carmela Soprano. Oh, that's a really good character. She, I think it's partly the character, which is very interesting and nuanced. And I thought, you know, the more I rewatch The Sopranos, the more I appreciate Carmela Soprano yes. as like, but it's also Edie Falco, who She's just so good. good unspeakably good like she is so good give her all the the prizes all the awards right i just i don't think i've seen acting range like that period right it's just so good and it's subtle yes and that's what i appreciate i appreciate performances where you first watch it and you you know you're watching for the plot essentially you miss all of it Mm -hmm. and on rewatch you can you can then see what the actors were doing and yeah edie falco devastatingly good yes yes one of the best one of the best we have and i feel like carmella is so interesting because they really could have made her a one note character who's just like constantly mad at tony for being incompetent and you know cheating on her constantly Mm -hmm. and whatever 
But like she like they give her some real opportunity to wrestle with the fact that she is the beneficiary of what she what she knows. You know what I mean? Of of this like of what she knows. She's not she's not dumb. Right. Yeah. And also the fact that like she's mad at him so much. But also, again, she reaps the benefits of his life. Yes. And um, I just I really love that they they gave her just so much new. She was complicated. She was very complicated. complicated, as complicated as he was really. And their relationship was very complicated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she's just very good at playing complicated characters. Cause she did it again in nurse Jackie and like everything she's done. She's so yeah. good. So her character, yeah. Carmela's character was a case study in like moral complicity, ambiguity, yes. you know, just, just what do you do with this? Like how, like, you know, you know what you need to do. She was, she was my, one of my favorite scenes in the Sopranos was when she, she meets with the Jewish therapist. Yes. And the therapist just tells her straight, you know, you have to leave. Otherwise, you know, you're a hypocrite. You're, yeah. you're complicit. You're an accomplice. You're, you're all of these things. Uh-huh. And she can't leave. And she knows yeah. she can't leave because she, she, can. she, she doesn't know how to live without the, you know, bed of luxury that this lifestyle yes. has afforded her. And yeah, it's not just the money, but it's like what she has, you know, what's what her, what she has to go through as a person to like gain independence. And she's, you know, and then when she tries to divorce, she can't, you know, all that. And she's trapped, but at the same time, she lives in like a, you know, a gilded palace, you know? So, yes. um, it, it's, it's very complicated. It's very deep. It's a mm-hmm. very well-written character. So Carmela Soprano. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. Yeah, we could talk about her for a long time, but we will move on to your next. (laughs) Number four of my non-wire list and my last is Uncle Phil from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Oh, that's a really good one. Oh, my God. How did I forget? That whole cast. Whole cast. Whole cast. And when when the cast ensemble like Ted Lasso, Brooklyn Nine-Nine is as strong as it is, it's really hard to pick out one. Like Mm -hmm. I was flip-flopping between... Uncle Phil and Carlton, like those. Yes, the Carlton and Jeffrey. Is just, I think Jeffrey. Jeffrey, Jeffrey, so good. Yeah, but I went with Uncle Phil because, in a lot of ways, he, you know, he plays that straight part extremely well and effectively. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they deal with like very serious issues at times, and he delivers every single time. Yeah, but that just sort of angry uncle dad motif that he does is like pitch perfect. Yeah, you know? yeah. What's what's the word? Um, He's put upon. He's just very put upon. Ugh. And he plays the comedy of that too. Oh, he's so he's good. very good. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Mm. Um, so yeah, Uncle Phil, Fresh Prince. That's my number four. All right. Now to the wire. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be hard not to be able to give these things away, Liz, because we have to talk about this. I know. Anyways. I know. Number three might surprise you okay. is Omar. Only number three. Yes. I am shocked. Yes. Bonafide shocked. Okay. And the only reason I I peg him down is because it's like, so the wire is like meant to be a gritty and realistic, like exploration of a great American city, Mm -hmm. you know, Baltimore. And Omar is like way too cool. Like he's, Mm. he's too for the gritty realism that this the show is going for. That's the only reason I'm I'm knocking him down to three. Mm-hmm. It's like anyone you talk to about Omar, like Omar is the one of the coolest characters, one of the most like magnetic, magnificently written characters on TV. Just mm-hmm. you know, he's he's so complex. He is a he's a guy who lives on the streets. He's street smart beyond his years. He you know, robs drug dealers for a living. He's kind of like a Robin Hood character mm. of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. He's gay. He's fierce. He's, you know, he's like feels things very deeply mm-hmm. and he has a code, you know, yeah. a code of the street. And he like, there is like a moral clarity in that character. Mm. And you get to see it play out in a morally like corruptible and complex and nuanced and gray world. Mm. Right. But he is like, he knows who he is and he lives by his code and he doesn't deviate from his code, you know? Yeah. Um, so the only reason he's number three, I mean, like, honestly, like if I could just watch Omar in the, in the show the entire time, that would be great because he is like by far the most entertaining thing about that show. Yeah. Um, but the only reason he's number three is because he's a bit stylized for that show and what it was going for. Okay. Okay. So 
My number two is also from The Wire. It's Detective Bunk Moreland. Okay. Who, um, plays, who plays that character? Wendell Pierce. Oh, Wendell Pierce in everything. Yeah. Oh, my God. Just what dripping an, What charisma. an actor. That voice. The voice yeah. alone. Give the voice an Emmy. <laughs> oh, my God. But he gives just, you know, you know, those like bigger guys that are really light on their toes. Yes. You know, and just can like, they're just like, smooth. even though they're like a bit heavy set, they're just smooth like butter. Mm-hmm. That is Bunk Moreland, you know? Yeah. He's, he's like the, he's like joke, you know, he's like that character who's always joking around in the office, but when things get serious, you know, like, yeah, he's the one. I don't know how, like, you should just, like, YouTube Bunk Moreland and just the amount of, like, one-liners this guy's given and can you just pull off is uh-huh. incredible. Is and he the one with the shit? No, 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 no. That's, okay, that's, else. Okay. but that, that is, like, a running thing. Like, everybody does that on the show, but, like, okay. yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's Clay Davis, but, yeah. Okay, got you, got um, you. But um, Bunk Moreland, yeah, he's just... I don't know. He's just, he's like the partner that you you hope you have if you're ever in a police uh, like a you know in the police department. Mm, he's that okay. guy. He's loyal. He's like he'll you know he'll tell you the truth. You know, mm-hmm. um, and he has this just mind blowingly good scene with Omar mm. when they get re- when they get real. You know, and they mm. talk about the neighborhoods they're from, and mm. you know Omar. You know, Bunk. He grew up hard too, but you know mm. he. He was set like his, you know, the people in his life put him on a straight path, but he could have easily gone Omar's way, yeah. you know? So there's uh-huh. a lot of empathy there, but there's a lot of like grappling with, you know, the carnage that Omar unleashes. It's just brilliant television. Hmm. But Bunk is like, the reason I love Bunk is because he brings a lot of levity to the show and the show mm. needs a lot of levity. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Love that. So you're my number two. And number one, um, my favorite character on The Wire, favorite character just overall, is a character named Bubbles. Ugh. And uh, Andre Royo. Andre Royo. Mm. It is... If you watch that show, if you ever get around to it, uh-huh. it you will be angry. Like It's almost like I've lost all faith in award shows uh-huh. because Andre Royo... And nobody on The Wire got an Emmy. But Andre Royo in particular. Uh-huh. So... Happens over five, like, you know, The Wire is five seasons long, right? Mm -hmm. And it's about the drug game, right? Mm -hmm. And it's about power players and, you know, um, you know, drug, drug kingpins going up against other drug, drug kingpins. It's like city developers going up against city hall. It's the union. It's like newspaper people, all these people playing power games. And so often as a viewer, we, we get intrigued. It's like palace intrigue or it's like political intrigue. You're, you're caught up in that. You're like, you know, obsessed with the whole power stuff. And that's really the fun stuff. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you, you watch as a viewer and as even as a viewer and as like a citizen, you forget about the victim of mm, the drug game. Yeah. And Bubbles is a drug addict. Mm. Um, very, very empath, like very empathetic, like a good person. You can just like you can't hide it. And Andre Royo just does such a great job of playing Bubbles. Mm-hmm. Just brings such a humanity that to that character, and he is the ultimate victim slash survivor slash just like the one the person who you know just to live and just to get out is it would be a miracle, you know. Mm-hmm. And he is like the moral in my view, the moral core of the show, of the show. Like if he wasn't there, we would just be off like talking about Omar and talking about Stringer Bell and, you know, like these, you know, very stylized characters and just like really, you know, like the power games they play. And you forget that the show is ultimately about people who, you know, get caught up in the system, you know, and Bubbles is there to remind you that this, this show is still ultimately about people. Yeah. The stakes, the stakes. Exactly. And you'll you'll forget about him. He's just kind of like he has his own arc, you know, mm-hmm. kind of going through the show. And and you, you you honestly, maybe on first watch, you forget about Bubbles. But mm. on multiple watches, you in some ways, the show is about Bubbles, you know, in yeah. a lot of ways. So. Yeah. Ah, oh, such a good list, Chris. That's a great Thank list. You. I love oh, it. Oh, man. Felt good to get that off my chest. There's yeah. a lot there. Oh. <laughs> um, what should we talk about next time? So um, I am going through home renovations. And for anyone who's gone through home renovations, you know that you're just on 
Instagram and wire cutter and all of these things looking for the best faucet or the best, you know, vent fan or the best what, 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 right? Mm -hmm. And so I want to know, just for my own purposes, what are some of the, your favorite, top five favorite things in the home that, that you love, that improve your life? Yes, top five, what do we call it? Top five home improvement things. Things that make your home better. Things that make your home better. Yes. Yeah. That's good. All right. I can't wait. This is peak 30s shit. And I've got things. <laughs> I've got, I've got, I've got things to share. So, ah, oh, Chris, this was fun. This was a great, great episode. Let's do it again sometime. See you in two weeks. <laughs>